sit-down strikes go beyond the limits of normal capitalist procedure. Independent of the demands of strikers, temporary seizure of factories deals a blow to capitalist property. Every sit-down poses in a practical manner the question of who is the boss of the factory, the capitalist or the workers. Welcome to Labour Days, a podcast about trade union issues and labour history. This is episode 28. Welcome indeed to Labour Days. Uh, In the cold open air, you heard Ellie reading out a quote from Leon Trotsky um, from uh, the the work of his most commonly known as the Transitional Programme, where he talks about the topic of today's episode, which is workplace occupations, otherwise known as sit-down strikes. Uh, Welcome to this episode. I'm Daniel. Um, As I mentioned, that was Ellie reading the cold open air, and we're joined, as usual, by Ed with Liam uh, behind the desk. This is, I think, the fourth or fifth episode we've done this year during the course of the pandemic. Um, And this is the first one that we're recording kind of all together via Zoom. Uh, So it's a bit of a technical experiment. The previous episodes that we put together um, this year have been done by stitching, kind of stitching together separate recordings. So um, hopefully this will uh, return you to the flowing... um, sparkling conversational style that the uh, traditional episodes used to have or something like that. Uh, Hope everyone is safe and well. Um, As I mentioned, this episode is looking at workplace occupations and uh, their history as a form of uh, workers' struggle. We thought this would be an appropriate focus, given that in the economic crisis triggered by the pandemic, workers um, in Britain and across the world are facing workplace closures and job cuts. And this um, tactic, this this form of struggle has traditionally been one that's um, been used in those types of uh, uh, battles and disputes in the past. And it's also one in which, um, as, as uh, you get a sense of from that Trotsky quote, which kind of raises the pitch um, of, of, of class struggle and, and poses some of those questions of class power. So... Um, we're going to start off with a presentation from our resident history department, uh, Professor Ed the Brain Mustill. He's going to be talking about the kind of history of this uh, tactic. We'll have a bit of discussion uh, following that, and then we're going to be looking at um, its more recent use in uh, class struggle in Britain and Ireland. So, without further ado, Ed, do you want to uh, take us on a journey into the past? Yeah, thanks. Um, when you say presentation, it makes me feel like I should have like a a whiteboard or, you know, PowerPoint or something. And then I remember that it's a podcast, so it wouldn't actually matter anyway. But uh, do you not have a do you not have a whiteboard or well if listeners want to imagine that I've <laughs> gone to that effort, then I'm I'm not gonna disabuse them of the notion. But yeah, we've uh, more more often than not, whichever sort of topic we're looking at, we uh, we usually end up talking about strikes of one form or another that have either happened or are happening. Um as Daniel sort of mentioned, this time we're looking at workplace op- occupations, which kind of are a form of strike in that they mainly either sort of grow out of a strike or they at least involve a kind of withdrawal of labour. Um, but in their most developed form, they can go far beyond your average strike. Uh, strikes, withdraw- withdrawal of labour is the sort of bread and butter of uh, exercising working class power. Um, occupations, as you're probably aware, The big difference is instead of walking out and picketing a workplace, workers physically stay in the workplace or enter the workplace, uh, take it over, um, sit down in the uh, in the parlance of the American labor movement in the workplace. Which which I think is a much better. I much prefer the term sit down strike to uh, the term occupation, don't you think? Don't you think that has a much better ring to it? Well, occupation sort of sounds like you're describing what you do to someone. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So sit down is the kind of, I'll probably use them interchangeably over the next uh, five minutes, sit down strikes, occupations. I'm talking about basically the same thing. Just, just so, so our, our mass audiences on both sides of the Atlantic can, can feel included. Yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to leave it. I don't know what they call them in Canada, you know, <laughs> I, but I'm happy to throw that term in if you're, if you're aware of it. 
Um, so the, the theoretical sort of idea of occupations uh, goes back to like my favorite period of labor history, which is immediately before the First World War, um, the kind of great unrest period uh, where kind of radical syndicalism uh, became sort of quite popular in uh, trade unions in Europe and, and in North America. Um, the word itself wasn't really used. They used to talk about, um, in theory, union organisation could get su to such a high point of a kind of 100% everyone in the union, uh, very class-conscious workforce, that workers would essentially be able to lock out the bosses and sort of carry on running the industry just but just without any capitalists so that was the kind of uh theory of some of the sort of industrial syndicalists it's a sort of uh, it's a kind of prefigurative idea right that you sort of you build up the uh administration of the future uh, industrial commonwealth via struggle in the present yeah, and you'd have uh, you'd have a kind of you'd have industries running uh, sort of self-running by the workers in the industry, and you almost wouldn't need uh, kind of parliamentary democracy then, because you would you would have this kind of economic democracy of of control over industry. Um, in hindsight, it seems like, in my opinion, a pretty naive idea. Uh, doesn't really reckon with the. Uh, tenacity of capital, which is obviously going to defend its own position. Um, it's not just going to let you take over an industry just because you've signed everyone up to the union in the workplace. And also uh, sort of doesn't really factor in the forces of the state that would obviously be used to sort of fight back against that, that sort of eventuality. Um, but that's sort of where it came from as an idea. Uh, in reality, widespread factory occupations didn't really occur until the First World War itself and the years immediately afterwards, where in a lot of countries there were a lot of um, what we would now probably term as occupations or, or sit-ins in, in, in sort of heavy industry factories, uh, most notably during the Russian Revolution itself and in Italy during the uh, Bieno Rosso or the two red years of 1919 to 1920. In the Russian Revolution, factory committees developed from the shop floor um, sort of uh, upwards into kind of city-wide sort of workshop and then plan and then industry and then city-wide organisations. Um, and the need for workers to control, uh, physically control factory sites was born at least in part out of a fear that um, bosses were going to sort of sabotage revolutionary Russia uh, by literally removing machinery from the factories which which some of them were trying to do and uh, and preventing the sort of economic life of the of the new democracy from functioning um that logic sort of finds an echo in lots of occupations down the century um often an occupation might be triggered when a company is closing a manufacturing site and workers sort of take custody of the fixed capital of the factory almost as a kind of bargaining chip against the employer. And in a lot of cases, the, one of the first things an employer will do when they close a factory is, is ship out the most expensive machinery if they want to sell it or, or use it elsewhere. Um, the factory occupation movement that swept across Italy in uh, 1919 was strongest in the city of Turin in uh, northern Italy. Uh, that was home to Fiat, the uh, motor company, and other major companies in associated heavy industries. And that sort of took on a, a sort of proto-revolutionary character spread across the country very rapidly. And the goal of those uh, sort of worker militants was similar to the sort of pre-war syndicalists was to take over complete control of those industries. Um, the Turin occupations particularly sort of foreshadowed another quite common feature of occupations which is the potential to cause conflict within trade unions themselves or between trade unions um the sort of worker theorists of the italian movement wanted uh, they saw workers uh, as as trying to go above and beyond just being wage owner uh, wage earners rather to be sort of conscious producers and taking on the role of the sort of owners of the means of production in society um, and envisaging that, 
that sort of implies a social order where the traditional machinery of industrial relations doesn't exist anymore because yeah. you don't need to negotiate with the bosses because you've sort of got rid of the bosses. Yeah, this, this is something that um, Antonio Gramsci writes about quite explicitly um, in, in that period. And, you know, he was someone that was kind of involved in that movement and writing about the occupations that Ed's talking about there, Gramsci said the socialist state already exists potentially in the institutions of social life characteristic of the exploited working class. So that's, again, that's kind of that revolutionary syndicalist idea that through the um, mechanisms of struggle and resistance that workers build up in the immediate class struggle, they're sort of presaging or, or prefiguring in some sense the administrative infrastructure of a socialist state or a, or a, or a workers' government. And, and that idea was common um, across a lot of the like revolutionary class struggle movements, particularly strong in revolutionary syndicalism, but, but not limited to it, um, of that period. Yeah, and again, it kind of threatens the material position of... Uh, trade union bureaucracy. I mean, we, we sort of talked about this a bit in the episode about rank and fileism, where we were looking at what do we mean when we talk about union bureaucracies, but because those bureaucracies sort of fulfill the function of, of being part of the machinery of industrial relations, when something comes along that kind of blows that machinery up, the usually the, the reaction of the trade union bureaucracy is, is one of hostility. Not because they're bad people, but because their their sort of social function is being threatened by it, um, and that did happen uh, to an extent in Italy among uh, Fiom, the metal workers' union, that was the probably the biggest of the unions involved in in that wave of occupations. Um, but it's important to kind of uh, point important corrective to the talking about the revolutionary wave after the First World War is that. Occupations by no means always exist uh, just in sort of febrile revolutionary circumstances where uh, the, the level of class struggle is incredibly high. Uh, far from it, for example, um, in the Great Depression post-1929 and into the 30s, uh, union organisation and class power was severely weakened by that because you had mass unemployment, you had... A lot of uh, trade union activists, trade unionists thrown out of work. You had, and as a consequence of that, uh, less power in the workshop. But in the 30s, the occupation as a form of struggle uh, re-emerged quite dramatically, most spectacularly in France and in the United States, where it was known as uh, the sit-down strike. Um, occupations in France in 1936 affected thousands of workplaces, and um, sort of coincided with the election of, uh, of a left-wing uh, popular front government um, in that country. And the, that wave of occupations inspired uh, socialist activists in the States, where labour militancy had been reviving from uh, 1934 onwards. And, uh, of course, 1934 being the year of Daniel. It's a, it's a, it's a key date for all listeners of uh, this podcast, of course. It's the year of the... Minneapolis Teamsters strikes covered uh, covered extensively uh, previously, um, but yeah, that, that, you know, as as we've talked about when we did our episode on on the Minneapolis strikes and, and when we've mentioned it previously, that strike was very much part of a wider wave of um, workers' struggle that 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 featured a number of of, of sit down strikes, and one of which I think Ed's about to mention, which was particularly significant in 1936-37. Yeah, and it's it's interesting that in this period in in the states, like the you could you can sort of you can sort of see a sort of organic re-emergence of class struggle, but also the actual kind of subjective role of like left-wing organisations and left-wing political parties is quite important, and a lot of the organised left in the states basically took kind of tactical decisions to kind of get activists in particular industries, sometimes even in specific companies or specific uh, factories uh, for the purpose of building an industrial base um, that, that they lost a lot of because of the mass unemployment in the early years of the, of the depression. Um, so again, the occupation form in the 30s largely was confined to heavy industry. 
um, in the US, particularly uh, the car industry and the associated industries around it. And um, the 36-37 sit-down strike that occurred in Flint, Michigan, were in the uh, various uh, manufacturing plants of General Motors, which uh, was the sort of, I suppose, jewel in the crown of uh, American industrial capitalism at the time. And it came about basically because the the UAW, which is still around, uh, the United Auto Workers Union, uh, it was a new union at the time, and it basically made a conscious decision to crack into General Motors and try and organize General Motors. Um, so it was a, a kind of an offensive dispute in that sense, a deliberate organizing drive by a trade union against a specific employer. Um, the sit-downs were also uh, partly a practical response to the use of extreme violence by employers and the state against picket lines across the United States, at least since uh, the end of the First World War, in fact, going back even beyond that, far more consistent and bloody levels of violence against uh, your average strike than we've ever really experienced in this country. And in the minds of a lot of uh, workers in the 30s, there was a, there was a kind of uh, almost literally kind of like uh, defensive element of doing a workplace occupation in that it was much harder for the cops to come along and beat you all up and arrest you if you had sort of barricaded yourself inside a factory. Um, so the Flint strike began at the end, of, right at the end of, uh, of December 1936, um, after a handful of small sit-down strikes in uh, various parts of uh, General Motors manufacturing uh, 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 sites, uh, usually against the uh, sum summary dismissal of, of workers for trade union activity or some minor infraction. Um, the full sit-down strike began um, again when news circulated around the plan that uh, the employer were basically about to remove uh, key bits of machinery uh, from the plant so that, that that was seen as a kind of precursor to potentially shutting the plant down uh, or scaling back, back production. Um, so the workers essentially barricaded themselves inside the factory, um, preventing scab labor from being bussed in and being more easily uh, able to um, repel inevitable attacks by the cops. Like a lot of American towns at the time, Flint was basically a company town, uh, General Motors, as well as being by far the largest employer, also basically ran local politics ran the local newspaper, had all that kind of uh, local state apparatus, um, the cops, uh, the courts, etc., sort of in their pocket. Um, so they were helped by the fact that one of the, one of the uh, attempts by the police to dislodge the workers by firing tear gas into the factory uh, was helped by a, a favourable wind that blew the tear gas back into the police's own faces and uh, caused them to give up and go away. God um, is on our side. <laughs> well, at least in this instance. <laughs> but um, so the employer did, as is uh, kind of uh, familiar to, to those of us still involved in industrial disputes uh, these days, the employer did get a court injunction against the strike. Uh, rather than shying away from that, the UAW sort of doubled down uh, and announced that the strike would be expanding to take in more factories um and that kind of that kind of threat sort of brought the employer to the table uh, there was an element of government intervention the government it, it, because of the uh the kind of significance of general motors to american capitalism the government uh did want to av avoid the embarrassment of having a a, a kind of national and very prolonged and very kind of violent industrial dispute in the company. Um, and after 44 days, the uh, UAW basically won uh, recognition, which was what the, the dispute was really about, um, albeit temporarily, but was able in subsequent year, years to solidify that and become one of the largest, uh, most powerful unions in the States. Um, the UAW's 
uh, own position on sit-down strikes became somewhat more hostile after they'd uh, achieved that recognition and become part of that machinery of industrial relations that I was talking about earlier. Um, but another kind of significant element of the Flint strike was what actually happened inside the factory was a sort of miniature kind of proto-state. So they had systems for food distribution, they put on plays, they put on concerts, they had a postal service for sending messages around different parts of the factory. Um, and that is something that you do get in the occupation as in its most uh, kind of uh, uh, filled out form. Uh, you do get that kind of um, the beginnings of that kind of sort of self-government happening in industry. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really a, a, an essential point about this form of struggle. And, I, I, you know, definitely a message I'd like to emphasize through through the episode today. And that's really the um, point that Trotsky's making in the quote that we heard in the cold open. And definitely in Flint, you can start to see these dynamics develop. You can start to see how worker control of production would look you as ed said you start to see the development of a kind of proto-governmental administrative um uh, administrative uh, infrastructure uh there are a number of other things about the flint strike which which i think are really significant and uh people should you know we, we don't particularly have time to go into masses of depth today but people who are interested should definitely go away and read more. The, the role of women activists was really important. Um, as in the Minneapolis uh, strikes around the Flint occupation, there was a kind of women's auxiliary formed, which played a really essential role, not just in um, doing the kind of domestic labor, social reproduction type stuff often associated with, um, uh, you know, or thought of as kind of women's work, you know, food and, and, and caring and stuff like that they, they were also key to the physical defense of the occupation um, and if you read accounts of the of, of the sit-down strike there's a particularly good one by janora um dollinger johnson who was a kind of key organizer of the women's auxiliary about some of the confrontations with sexism that that this opened up so again that that dynamic of you know a high pitch of struggle leading to um confrontations with issues way beyond the immediate kind of economic tension between uh, boss and worker. Um, Ed's already flagged up the kind of important role of left groups um, in this struggle, both the, the CPUSA, you know, it was Stalinized by this time, but, you know, undeniably play, played an important role, and the Socialist Party, um, which was kind of radical social democratic and which um, uh, Janora Dollinger Johnson was, was a member of at the time, also uh, played important roles. And I also just wanted to mention the kind of the question of culture, because it seems like a sort of trivial point. And you might think of like, OK, well, the workers put on plays and stuff just because they needed to pass the time. Um, but this is a feature you see again and again recurring in um, occupations and sit down strikes. It was a quite a big thing in the um, factory occupation movement in France in, in, in 1968, which I think Ed might mention. And it occurs in the Vestas occupation, which we're going to talk about later, of, of workers um, using occupied workplaces as a space for kind of cultural expression. And obviously part of that is just about entertaining themselves to pass the time, but I think it's also about um, when you're free from the immediate tyranny of the boss, your, 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 your kind of cultural as well as your economic horizons are able to open up a little bit. Um, another interesting sort of historical curio about the flint strike on the cultural front is that charlie chaplin licensed the showing of his movie he, he like get, gave the uaw license to show his movie uh, modern times so that was um that was screened which is about uh, the, the factory system and yes and exactly on the human spirit um so yeah i mean Flint is um, uh, f fantastically significant historically for all sorts of reasons. And uh, uh, if listeners are interested in uh, reading and watching more about it, um, there are two really good written accounts of the strike, one by a guy called um, Walter Linder, who uh, was a actually a member of a kind of small like Maoist split from the, um, at the time he wrote the account, was, was a member of a, a small Maoist split from the, the American Communist Party. Um, but but does give a very good sort of factual account of what happened in the sit-down strike. And then uh, Janora Donja Johnson, 
Um, her account's also very good. There's also a great film which is on YouTube in its entirety called With Babies and Banners, which tells the story of the sit-down strike with a particular focus on um, the role of women activists. So we'll put links to all that stuff in the episode description if people are interested in uh, learning more about the Flint occupation. So occupations and sit-downs have periodically emerged since the 30s all around the world, basically wherever you get uh, manufacturing uh, in particular, you've had uh, the form of the of the factory occupation, the sit-down strike has, has kind of emerged. Um, most widespread, as, as Daniel mentioned, uh, 1968 strike in France, which was uh, the largest strike wave in the history of uh, Western Europe, uh, which lasted several weeks. Um, and certainly in, in a lot of places in France, um, that because of the amount of time that that strike lasted, it did um, raise the question of uh, who organises production. So they went beyond just being strikes into being kind of uh, worker-controlled factories in some cases. And that I think there's a strong argument to say that 1968 in France did have a kind of proto-revolutionary character uh, and could have gone could have gone even further. Um, the birth of Solidarność Union in uh, the independent trade union in Stalinist Poland in the 80s uh, also made use of uh, the occupation as a tactic. Uh, more recently, um, the economic crisis in Argentina at the turn of the century, 2000-2001, uh, um, gave rise to uh, a series of uh, factory occupations. Um, it was a kind of a currency crisis and, and the economy was in free fall and a lot of places announced that they were closing. And again, for, for immediate sort of uh, practical purposes, the occupation seemed like a, a, a sort of better tactic than going on. You know, you, could, you can argue, is there much point having a strike? when the boss has announced that the factory is closing next week anyway probably not but there is some point in seizing control of the factory and the machinery in it and in the argentine uh, kind of wave of occupations again uh, the question of production uh, arose and some of those factories sort of turned their hand to uh, becoming uh, workers co-ops some of them ended up buying out the factories um and that raises all sorts of uh, questions that we don't really have time to discuss about how and if those kind of worker-run enterprises can exist in a kind of sea of capitalism without just starting to behave themselves like capitalist enterprises. Uh, each of these examples of waves of occupations uh, deserves kind of an episode uh, to themselves, so uh, I, I won't, I can't really go into much more detail. Um, in this country, in the... Yeah, go on. I, th I, th I think uh, with just just a couple of like notes on the Argentinian movement, which I think draw out some of the important themes. Um, yeah, as as you say, like uh, for for a group of workers, so so a number of the the, the occupied factories in Argentina, uh, the occupations began when workers turned up to work on a given day and just found the factory locked up. You know, the bosses had just fled. You know, lot, no notice thing pinned to the gates of the factory saying this is factory's closed now, you're all out of work. And they, rather than just sort of rolling over and accepting that, they kind of bust the locks off the factory door, like broke in basically and just said, right, we're going to start production up ourselves. So it, it does pose the question of control of production in a very, very direct sense. Um, and those factories, typically the occupied factories in Argentina also run on a very were also ran on a very democratic basis. So decision-making about production was made in assemblies. There'd be delegates, recallable delegates from different workshops within factories elected. Um, and the, occupi the Occupied Workplaces movement in Argentina, which is, which is another significant thing about it and something it might be worth us discussing, um, wasn't just limited to manufacturing. So as part of that movement, there, were, there, was, an there was a worker-occupied hotel um, there, were, there were definitely some other workplaces as part of that that were, that were not uh, manufacturing workplaces. And although the nature of manufacturing as a, as a kind of industry and an industrial process lends itself to this tactic because, it, you know, it's something that's very easy for workers. Well, easy is the wrong word, but it's kind of very direct. There's a very direct way in which workers can take control of the 
production process in manufacturing. It's also quite easy for workers to repurpose or, or again, quite direct for workers to repurpose the manufacturing capacity of workplace to, to, to manufacture something else. And, you know, that, that's been an element of kind of struggles that we've seen in the past, things like the Lucas plan and, and so on. But occupations aren't just limited, haven't just been limited historically to manufacturing workplaces. And what, one thing we might discuss is the relevance and usefulness of the sit-down strike as a tactic in um, non-manufacturing uh, workplaces, which there have been some. You know, there have been work-ins in schools and hospitals. Um, so it, is, it isn't just something that's limited to, to, to manufacturing. And I think, you know, gi given that a lot of the layoffs and job cuts and closures that workers are going to be facing in our immediate context now, are not going to be well some are in manufacturing but, but many aren't you know they'll be in retail they'll be in service sector workplaces and i think it's important to emphasize the sit down strike you know has a, has a relevance and a, and a possible application there as well yeah yeah particularly in a in a economy like modern britain where where manufacturing is very much a minority sector and like you say most most people who are who are the worst affected at the moment are in uh, are in other industries. Um, there, there hasn't been uh, just to kind of finish uh, the the history bit. I suppose uh, there hasn't been a comparable wave of occupations in Britain to some of the stuff that I've just mentioned. There has certainly been significant individual occupations, particularly in the seventies and eighties. Uh, there's never really been a, a kind of explosion, a wave of occupations yeah. on on the on the same scale as uh, what happened. Well, in you, you, you say you, you say that. I think that's that's true in general terms. There, there hasn't been. It's definitely true. There hasn't been an equivalent wave of something like '68 in France, which reached a sort of revolutionary pitch. But I was reading that um, between '73 and '75. So obviously, that's at a period of a pretty high pitch of struggle. In this country, in this country, when the organised labour movement was probably at its biggest and strongest, there were over a hundred occupations against job cuts. Now, a lot of them would have been probably very small workplaces or occupations that didn't last very long, that were, you know, about kind of resisting an, an, an immediate cut or closure. So, yeah, not occupations of the France type or the the, the Argentina type or you know of Solidarność, where they're part of proto-revolutionary struggles, um, but. You know there is a there is a tradition in the labor movement of this country of of using this tactic yeah and those, those mid 70s sort of occupations were were uh, in, in part at least inspired by a, a work in at the upper clad shipbuilders uh, uh, yard in Scotland which did have a, a knock-on impact and also had quite a quite a significant impact as well on on kind of left politics and the, and a sort of re-emergence of the idea of workers control in within the kind of uh sort of welfare statist kind of uh, landscape of of post-war british politics it was something that arguably the the trade union movement had kind of stopped talking about and uh, the UCS working and, and that subsequent wave sort of uh, brought it back on onto the agenda, talking about industrial democracy, workers' control and, and all the rest of it. Um, after the uh, most recent economic crash in 2008, there were a number of smaller occupations in, uh, in Britain and Ireland, uh, which um, Daniel's going to talk about right now. Cool, yeah, thanks, Ed. So um, Ed's just given us a real whistle-stop, you know, nearly ne nearly 100 years of uh, classical history in uh, a, a very brief, brief time there. And I'm, and I'm going to give a similarly kind of whistle-stop overview uh, to a number of occupations that took place, as Ed said, in the immediate aftermath of the 2008 financial crash. So, so, so in that aftermath, as listeners will probably remember, and possibly from their own personal experience, hundreds of thousands of workers faced job cuts, workplace closures, and other attacks on terms and conditions. Um, and although we can see with the benefit of over a decade's hindsight that the crash didn't provoke a sort of sustained wave of worker militancy or a real ongoing reinvigoration of the labour movement, there were some really important flashpoints. And the sit-down strike uh, the workplace occupation made a brief but inspiring reappearance on the terrain of class struggle in Britain and Ireland. So in February 2009, workers at a Waterford crystal factory in Ireland staged an eight-week occupation 
in an attempt to prevent the closure of the factory. Uh, in early March, workers at the Prismi packaging plant in Dundee occupied against layoffs. And then beginning on the 31st of March and the 1st of April, workers at three uh, Visteon factories, which supplied parts for Ford uh, in Belfast, Basildon and Enfield, um, occupied in response to the announcement of redundancies. The Basildon occupation was very brief, but the Enfield and Belfast occupations continued for nine days and 11 weeks, respectively. Um, and although ultimately jobs weren't saved at Vistia and improved redundancy terms were secured. And then in August 2009, workers employed by the travel agent Thomas Cook occupied their shop in Dublin's Grafton Street for five days to resist redundancy. And that occupation was ended by a 5 a.m. police raid. And again, that's something you see um, reoccurring throughout the kind of history of this tactic of struggle is often quite um, intense and violent confrontations um, with the police, because although on the one hand, as Ed pointed out, and as we hear um, workers who've participated in these sorts of struggles um, attesting to, in some ways, an occupation is much, much harder to break than just a, than just a standard strike. Uh, it means that the level of violence that the police is then, you know, has to deploy if they want to smash it up is, is, is contingently higher. So um, in a lot of these uh, occupations, there, there have been pretty intense levels of, of police violence. And the Thomas Cook occupation in Dublin, as, as I say, was ended by a, by a police raid at, at five in the morning. Yeah, and just kind of echoing what you said earlier, Daniel, I think the the Thomas Cook occupations, um, they were really interesting. And and also, you know, it didn't stay confined to one store. And, um, it's, it spread to at least one other store. Um, and um, there was another branch occupied and may even have gone a little bit further than that with actions across other sort of shops. Um, and, you know, as we were talking about, what we're going to see moving forward, I think, will be huge um, blows and, uh, yeah, huge blows to people who are not working in manufacturing. Like you said, it, th these are going to be people who are probably working in the service industry or working in shops. Um, and the Thomas Cook episode shows that you can transfer these skills to other kind of workplaces. But I guess, yeah, again, the question is for what and why um now they did win some concessions i think um and they got better redundancy pay um but i they're never going to take over the um they're never going to take over thomas cook and i don't think they would want to so we have to think about when we use these and for what reason we use them yeah definitely and um that's uh a, a very salient point in in the context of the struggles that we're talking about because i think in, in a sense it shows the sort of the diversity of the potential applications of this tactic that it can be used as a sort of last line of resistance type tactic when you're just trying to force better terms um, um or it can be used um if conditions allow for it and the nature of the workplace allows for it as, as a means to assert control over um over production um but despite the that kind of diversity in terms of the you know the different industrial contexts in which these occupations were taking place, they they did all have um, some key features in common. So so all of these two thousand and nine occupations I've mentioned were um, kind of understandably given the conditions, sort of protest occupations. They were part of defensive struggles to resist job losses and workplace closures, um, and, and often as as we've said, ended up being about trying to force better redundancy terms from the employer um, uh, in, in the event of those job losses, rather than being sort of offensive actions undertaken to control, uh, you know, take control of production or to win demands like union recognition, which was the, the, a key demand in the Flint strike. Uh, they were all illegal, which is really important. You know, they absolutely trashed the limits of uh, normal trade union routine and procedure, which I think we can all sort of assimilate and adapt to, to some extent. Um, and on a related note, and although uh, we don't have a lot of time to go into this now, the role of the kind of officialdoms of the unions involved uh, was, was not, uh, let's say, always uniformly positive. Um, so another workplace occupation that took place that year, 2009, is one that became arguably the most prominent and one which we've discussed on the podcast before in, I think, our ninth episode looking at worker struggles around climate and environmental issues. Uh, the owners of the Vestas Wind Turbine Blades factory in Newport on the Isle of Wight 
declared their intention to close the plant, which employed 525 people, um, supported and encouraged by some outside agitation from uh, socialist environmental activists, and with a growing campaign on the island against the closure of the factory, workers decided to occupy, commencing their occupation on the evening of the 20th of July. Links were made between um, Vistian occupiers and the Vestas campaign, uh, with Ron Clark, who'd been one of the uh, Vistian occupation leaders in Enfield, visiting the Isle of Wight to support the developing campaign against uh, the closure of the Vestas factory. And an activist involved at the time described Clark's visit, uh, which happened on the 3rd of July, as a key catalyst um, in that struggle. Um, I was very lucky to be able to uh, speak briefly to Jamie Rigby, who was one of the Vestas workers involved in that occupation, um, about his experience. So, great. Well, um, the first question I wanted to ask was how you and um, the other workers first made the decision to um, occupy. How did it all start? It was just slowly building up like a snowball, I suppose. Um, I think someone suggested it to start with, and then it, it sort of spread around the, uh, the factory. Um, it all started with a leaflet. So, 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 so there'd been this kind of... Um, you know, agitation outside the factory by by various activists who'd been who'd been leafleting you guys. Once you once the group of workers who who, who eventually ended up launching the occupation had decided to do it. Um, what yeah. what were your what were your kind of next steps at that point? Yeah, yeah. No, I do remember sat down with discussing what what plant to take over because there's the one in Cowes and the one in Newport, and it was suggested the best sort of area than well known the Newport one because the offices upstairs were hidden out the way and you did have access to the balcony which would be helpful and whereas cows you would have been indoors um, locked away so we, yeah we did sit down and discuss like which area and what building would be best and um, what sort of time um, obviously when nobody's there um, and that yeah that was pretty much it was quite quickly done and then I think one day we met up to discuss what, what, when the next sort of best, like when to, to go on to the next move, like, um, or prepare. And I think it was decided that day that like, we should go and grab as much as we can just for a couple, just for a couple of days of possibly being inside. Um, but yeah, it was very much, we were sat down discussing what we were going to do, and then it was decided that we were going to do it that night. So it was sort of very last minute. Right. I think somebody had got wind. That was it, yeah. So, um, one of the managers apparently got wind that we were planning something but didn't know what. So before it went to the sort of next stage, from um, from Vesta's point of view to like getting security in, we decided to just go and do it that night. I think, yeah, it was very last minute. Yeah, so, so when... Um... When you first launched the occupation, how long did you have any sense of like how long you were um, expecting to be in there for? Uh, I, I only thought we'd be in there a few hours. <laughs> yeah, I thought you were going to get arrested straight away. Just come in and arrest us, take us out. I honestly thought, yeah, I didn't, I didn't think it'd last. Definitely nowhere near that long. Right. Yeah. So. So. Yeah. <laughs> obviously, quite quite different from from your expectation in that case. Yes. Yeah. Um, massively different. <laughs> so. Once it became clear that that wasn't going to happen, that you weren't all going to be arrested and cleared out straight away and that you were going to be in there for a sustained period, um, how did you go about sort of organising yourselves in the occupation itself? Like, what, what was life like inside? How did you make decisions? Um, how did you pass the time? Uh, I think the first couple of days was just a bit uh, just trying to contact everyone. And then as it, the days progressed, we organised a, a, a meeting time where we'd sit down and discuss... Um, what had happened throughout the day and we did start making a play as well to sort of occupy ourselves yeah I remember I remember seeing video of that actually yeah, <laughs> yeah. so that sort of helped um, uh, I think Seb was doing some musical stuff yeah funny just to sort of keep us entertained uh, and that was it really just sort of um just making up things to do, just sort of keep the keep the mind occupied. I'd luckily I brought my laptop in, so we had a bit of communication through that. How important was the um, was the kind of support encampment that kind of built up on the on the roundabout outside the factory? Because it it became a real 
focal point for for um, the kind of labour movement and the, and the environmental movement. So how important was that um, continuous uh, sort of support presence? Oh, massively for us. I mean, so I don't think, I don't think half of us would have laughed as long about that sort of support outside. It just sort of, when we saw them come round and see all the people out there, it was just, just non-drive, if that makes sense. Yeah. It was just, like, really nice to see, knowing that, knowing that word had got out and we weren't on our own inside. Sure. Yeah, and it, it sort of, it, like that, so it gave us a bit more power as well, so the management couldn't just come in and take us out or they had to follow rules, obviously, because there was sort of vigilance from the other side. Yeah. So, what would you, look, looking back on the experience, um, what would you say the benefits of a workplace occupation as against more um, perhaps basic forms of protest, either you know a demonstration or even just a kind of traditional strike? Um, what, what would you say the benefits of, 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 of occupying a workplace are in, in, in terms of um, uh, you know a struggle against job cuts or closures? It's a bit of a tough one because ideally you would like to have sat down in a room and discussed the management, which which was cut off with us because we didn't have a, a union or any reps sure. to sort of have this conversation. So it was very much we're doing it this way, whether you like it or not. So yeah. we had to sort of take it up to the occupation or whatever. But I think it would have been nice to have the stages before of like yeah, sitting down with management saying this is what, ideally what we would like. Is there a possibility for this? And then that being the last resort rather than first resort, I, I think that was. I mean, there was, there was a few little words. Like, but every time we asked about things, it would just get, uh, just, oh, yeah, we'll find out. And then we'd never hear anything back. And so, yeah. It's, um, I think that's interesting, thinking about an occupation as, as a kind of last resort. And I think a lot of workers in the situation you found yourselves in, you know, facing job cuts and closures would, would probably feel the same way. But but in 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 um in a, in quite a real sense, you sort of um you accelerated the process in quite an admirable way, I think, because a, a, a lot of the time when those structures are in place, you know, I, obviously I I agree with you. It's better to have a recognised union and to have formal mechanisms and procedures to negotiate with management. But a lot of the time, they can be used by bosses to tie workers up in in these kind of bureaucratic negotiations that end up not really going anywhere. And okay, yeah, yeah. You, you know you you end up having to you, you you know you might you might end up in a situation where by that point it's too late. So I think what what you did is a good example of how sometimes it's worth deploying the last resort first. If you see what I mean. Right. Yes. Yeah. No. That makes sense. Yeah. Um. So, I guess the the, the final question I'd um I'd want to ask is that you know for you reflecting on your experiences as. A worker involved in a in a in an occupation to try and stop job cuts and closures. You know, we're in a situation now with the economic crisis that's triggered by the the, the pandemic, where lots of other workers are going to be in that position that you were in, where their bosses are announcing, right, we're closing the workplace, we're cutting jobs, and I think workers are going to be looking around and thinking, okay, what can we do about this? So, what's the kind of immediate advice you'd give to any group of workers? who are in that position today that you found yourselves in in 2009? Um, I, I definitely get someone that understands uh, the process. The trouble is, if, I think if sometimes if you rush it amongst yourselves, you could, I, I found myself being in a very panicked state and almost almost giving up, but because there was others around me that sort of understood the process a bit better, they, they, they talked about it a bit more, so I wouldn't, yeah... It's a bit of a tough one getting that balance where you, you want to go in and do something, but then it's always. But then it's nice to know it's sort of structure. Sure. Um, so, so would you say it's about having, you know, whether that whether it's a, a formal structure either for a union or, or an info, or, or an informal structure, but about having a place where workers can discuss these things collectively and plan, you know, pl plan action together on the basis of those discussions. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's just, I don't know. Sometimes, like, but then you've got the opposite bit where there are there are sort of I can't remember the words where you do get the odd worker that will slip information to management. Sure. Yeah. We had. Yeah. So you've, you've got to have that big trust and somebody. Uh, yeah. It's, a, it's it's such an awkward thing, but um, but things like 
if you were planning were you talking about if you were going to plan an occupation sorry if you well were... well yeah possibly i mean i guess i guess both from that sort of practical point of view of you know what if a group of workers were thinking about doing it what advice would you give but also more generally just from that you know you know, at, at, the, at the moment of the, you know, the boss boss has made an announcement, right, we're closing the workplace, we're cutting X number of jobs, you know, what's the first step? Obviously, for you guys, it was getting, you know, on the, uh, after the folks outside the factory had done the leafleting, I guess that prompted you to get together and have those kind of discussions that you were talking about from which the plans emerged. So um, I guess I'm asking, like, what's yeah both from the practical point of view of planning an occupation but also the more general question of like what's the best way for workers to kind of get together to discuss how to respond in the first place yeah i think i think get, get, get a big presence would always help you find if, if if it's only a few of you sometimes i mean you can slowly snowball it so there will be more joining you but at the start you need to, to feel like there's a people behind you i suppose would make you feel a bit stronger and a bit worthwhile doing um another thing is if you were paying an occupation is to, is to get information because i think if we we had done it originally i don't think we would have taken such things as ropes a laptop um any communication and it, could, it would have been an awkward thing because we wouldn't be able to hold the doors shut and, and things like that it's just it's just getting the knowledge yeah of everything at the start i think and understand what you're getting yourself into sure I think, yeah, because it was a big thing in my mind that, oh, is it is it worth it? Am I just going to get arrested before I get in? Is it Am I am I going to be sent to prison? And you have it all going through your head, and you're just like, oh, is this? And, it's, yeah, it's very scary at the start, but once you understand people talk you through, like, when we were in there, the, the managers couldn't break the doors down because it's against the law to damage the building because it's not their building, and we were entitled to be in there. It was a big surprise to me. It's like, yeah, it's a bit it's strange. <laughs> yeah, it's just all understand. Yeah, a lot of understanding. I don't. Really sure. Yeah. No, that's. That, makes... that does make sense. I think that's all. That's all good advice. Uh, so that was Jamie Rigby, a former Vestas factory worker and one of the workers who occupied uh, the Vestas factory in the Isle of Wight in 2009. Um, and I think you can hear from. Uh, Jamie's interview, something that was common to quite a lot of the occupations that took place that year, that it was seen by the participants as quite a sort of a sort of explosive nuclear option that they felt they had to do because there was kind of nowhere else to go. And J Jamie talks in the interview about wishing that, you know, there'd been, you know, a recognised union or some structures via which they could have negotiated about the closure before having to make the decision to, to occupy. And I think there's probably hints at a sort of interesting aspect to all this, which echoes some of the stuff you were saying earlier, Ed, about the way in which occupations really test the limits of and, and in fact, exceed the limits of, you know, n n normal procedure. And again, you know, that, that, re that references back to the, to the Trotsky quote, which says exactly that about sit-down strikes going beyond, beyond the limits of, of normal procedure. Um, so there's probably something interesting to discuss there in the contemporary context where, like at Vestas, a lot of the workplaces that are facing mass layoffs and closures now don't have recognised unions. There won't be formal bargaining structures. So even if you think those structures and mechanisms are useful for resisting closures and um, layoffs and stuff like that, and, you know, that's a whole other discussion about um, how formal negotiating machineries can be used most effectively, but... Even if you even if you can you can use them effectively if they're not there, you you know you're not going to have time to establish them in the heat of an immediate struggle against uh, against layoffs and, and closures and that's that's the situation the Vestas workers found themselves in so they were kind of forced to go for their forced to go for what some of them like Jamie obviously saw as a last resort as a first resort if you see what I mean. Um, so that's a kind of interesting an, an interesting aspect. Um, the occupations in that 2009 wave um, mostly succeeded in, in winning improved redundancy terms for workers rather than you know winning outright victories that prevented job losses or, or closures wholesale. Uh, the following year, um, the working class suffered a, a, a significant political setback when the Tory Lib Dem coalition government was elected. And the year after that, in 2011, with the, the quite crushing defeat of the public sector pension dispute, um, that dealt a blow that, in many ways, we're still kind of dealing with the consequences of. 
Um, occupations have been seen only occasionally since then in Britain and Ireland. Uh, for example, at Vita Cortex in Cork in 2012, uh, at Bifab in Scotland in 2017, and uh, most recently at Harland and Wolf in Belfast last year, where a nine-week occupation uh, did succeed in, in staving off the closure of the shipyard. Um, and as we've kind of emphasised throughout our discussions today, as we, as we face another wave of, of job losses and closures as part of the economic crisis triggered by the pandemic, um, I think we kind of need to rediscover tactics like this. Uh, and, and ideally, if we can, and if we, if we can kind of maintain this horizon, move beyond sort of protest and resistance and think about how this tactic can slot into a strategy that's about building power. Yeah, I think that's a really important point because, um, and we've kind of mentioned it sort of implicitly, but there's a there's a there's a transgressive element to any occupation, whether it's kind of done defensively or whether it's done to just get some more redundancy pay, even if you think you can't stop the place from shutting down or whatever, because you can't by its nature, you can't have like a, an, an official occupation in the way that you can have an official strike. Um, you can't kind of serve your employer with like two weeks notice to say that on as from, you know, April the 7th, we will be occupying your factory. It doesn't. So even if the demands of it come from quite a, a limited place of, of, for example, saying, well, we think our redundancy package is shit, even just the act of doing it, the experience of doing it is much more kind of radical than the experience of doing a sort of 24-hour sort of tokenistic strike. There's something about it which does almost automatically go beyond just being a protest action. And there's no kind of telling, like, the the impact that that can have on uh, a set of workers' kind of, like, morale. And because um, you do as well, like, you know, something that came up in the interview that we just listened to about Vestas and something that Daniel has said previously is that it will often, um, yeah, put you into um, really quite a head-on confrontation with police by its very nature. Um, and but also you do have um, really quite strong bargaining chips in ways that you may not have at other times, you know, because if you are in a in a factory that's got expensive equipment in it, do they really want to come in and, and smash up that equipment? And, um, you know, so you're playing with more bargaining chips than you normally would be, I think, in, in lots of situations like this. Um, but you're also, as you say, because it is transgressive and it is, it can be very aggressive as an action, you are, um, you know, much more likely to, to find yourself at the sharp end of struggle. And as much as we, again, we've said this before, we don't want to kind of like, <laughs> we don't want to kind of incite violence and like big, big up that it is, it does also have a different effect on the psyche of a movement to, you know, be in these, these pitched battles than just your kind of tokenistic, like 24 hours, go out, maybe, I don't know, like stand around in the cold and then go back in again. It's, it's a completely different way of operating. Yeah. Cause this is definitely something we've remarked on before that one of the sad ironies of being involved in class struggle in a period when the struggles at a very low ebb is that sometimes going on strike sadly and counterintuitively can actually be a disempowering experience you know if you're on strike in a workplace that doesn't have a very high union density you're maybe one of two or three people on a picket line sort of slightly miserably shuffling your feet somewhat away from the entrance to the workplace while most people are filing past you that doesn't feel good you know it doesn't that, that that's not an empowering experience whereas um a workplace occupation and we look we, sh we should say that you know the vestas occupation was an act of a, a very small proportion of the workforce of that factory um so we're not talking about you know a a, a majority or even a large minority of the total workforce um, sitting down in their workshops and taking over production or, or, or threatening to or, or anything like that, but even a, an action undertaken by a minority of the workforce that takes physical control of some of the workplace space, even if you're only doing that as a means of exerting leverage rather than to take control of production, it's just a completely different 
it's a it's a kind of completely different ex experience and and um, process that you're going through than uh, than uh, other forms of action or, or forms of protest. So, um, you know, we, we, we I guess that's that's why we started with that Trotsky quote because it really does get to the heart of it in terms of um, in terms of how these th this this tactic has a sort of dynamic that goes beyond the immediate demands that are being posed, um, which is which is why it's it's uh, it, it's been of such historic significance i mean something else it's probably worth flagging up and you know we, we didn't intend this episode to be a how to occupy your workplace 101 you know we wanted to give a brief historical survey however you know we have said pretty explicitly that we think these types of tactics need to be rediscovered in a context in which workers are facing closures and layoffs and, and and mass job cuts so i think there's some interesting points in the interview with jamie about some of the practical elements to this the the, the planning and preparation that's necessary thinking about where in the workplace you will have most leverage and be most effective in terms of um, um, in terms of looking to occupy um and also the emphasis on the importance of a support movement. I mean, Jamie's really clear in the interview that the support movement around the Vestas occupation was crucial to it. Um, and I think that's important as well. And I think that's, that's, a, that's another uh, way in which these types of struggles go beyond normal procedure that they can, you, you know, you get this in like very uh, high, high pitches of strikes where there's kind of mass picketing and, and, and mass support protests in, in support of picketing. But with an occupied workplace, it can become, and in a sense, m must become, in order to win, the, the kind of focal point of a, of a support movement. So that's a way of broadening the struggle of bringing in communities, um, it, you know, empowering, empowering other people with kind of within within the community, within the class, to 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 to, to participate in in that struggle as well. The question of planning is a really interesting one because in the even even in the Flint strike, the the union had deliberately chosen a particular plan where the die stamps for making the like car bodies, uh, 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 all the other GM plants were made in this plan. So it was like a kind of strategically important kind of part of the chain of production. The uh, it, and as you were talking, Daniel, it reminded me of like being a student and being involved in a student occupation, which of course is very different and the stakes are a lot lower usually. And you have no you have no economic power from doing it. It is a kind of protest action when students do it. But I kind of thought back to sort of when we did it and that was it was around that time. It was around the 2009 uh, time where there was a wave of uh, student occupations as well. And we kind of didn't really plan it at all and just sort of went and did it. But very, very quickly, by the act of doing it, you, you immediately get faced with loads of practical things that you have to think about and come up with solutions to, like how are we going to get food, you know, how are we going to secure the like the physical space of the building, like how are we going to get the word out there so that people know about it and we're not just all sat in here twiddling our thumbs all of all of that sort of stuff that that's why i think it as well it can potentially be more um empowering if you want to use the word than, a, than your average strike because it, it makes you have to take control over things and it also questions the kind of sacrosanct nature of private property just by the act of kind of trespassing on it and, ta and taking control of it. And that's why a lot of occupations are dealt with so harshly, ultimately, because they point to that in however small a way they point to that alternative way of organizing society. Mm. Yeah, and in a, in a very immediate sense, that's the that's where you get this sort of dual, um, dual character of, you know, on the one hand, it puts you in a stronger position because it's you know it's it's, it's harder to break than a, as we were saying before it's harder to break than a regular strike but it also means that the uh the, the bosses or the police or security security or, or whoever are um 
perhaps sometimes prepared to deploy even more force in order to, you know, because as you say, Ed, you're, you're holding on to something that, as far as they're concerned, belongs to them. And they're, uh, you know, they're particularly keen to kind of wrestle it back off you. Um, and although, you know, they might, on the one hand, that makes them tread carefully because they don't want to damage it in the process. If we're talking about, you know, an occupation where workers are um, in control of machinery or, or, you know, workplace technology that they need, as you say, it's uh, as far as, as as far as the kind of the religion of capital is concerned, private property is sacrosanct, and they will go to whatever length necessary to um, to, to to rest it back off you. So it's definitely not something that should be entered into lightly, for sure. And I guess that's why you know that's one of many reasons why we didn't pose this episode as here's how to occupy your workplace because you know just kind of not at that point and it would i think it would be a bit it would be kind of like reckless play acting really to to think think that we're able to talk in that way but i think looking at the history looking at the way the tactics been used some of the themes and, and and issues that come up time and time again um that's a kind of good starting point if 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 we do agree that we're in a condition that sort of suggests this kind of tactic might be useful well, I think that's kind of brought us nicely to the end of the conversation. So um, thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, we hope that you've got something out of this, even if it's not a 101 how to occupy your uh, workplace right now. That's the next so episode. That, yeah, that's the next episode. So, <laughs> we will um, post links to all of the things that we've mentioned in the episode so far, um, lots of online reading and kind of the films that Daniel spoke about. Um, but until next time, we hope that you're staying safe in this pandemic and that we hope you are finding ways to continue the struggle in unprecedented times. Labor Days was presented by Ed Mustill, Ellie Clark and Daniel Randall. The producer was Liam McNulty. Additional research was provided by Holly Smith. Our guest on this episode was Jamie Rigby. You can find Labor Days on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at Labor underscore Days.